0: Please open your Bibles, if you have one, to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3. While you turn there, I will uh, give you some idea of where we've been and where will we be going. Um, we took a brief aside, what was meant to be a two-week aside, but because I couldn't get through my outline last week, now it's a three-week aside, going through 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 17. We're in the middle of a study of Habakkuk, which has about four more weeks left in it, and then, God willing, um, at this, when we get into probably July, we'll begin the Gospel of John, and we'll be in the Gospel of John sometime. So, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with this passage. Uh, when, when you think about the doctrine of the Bible, uh, the inspiration of Scripture, this is one of the chief passages That we go to, and yet, in its context, it's really put out by the apostle Paul as a way of undergirding, strengthening, supporting Timothy in his perseverance in the faith. We we consider that two two weeks ago, when Mitchell um, highlighted and contrasted Timothy and the, the dangers in the world around him, those falling aside and and. Paul calling on him to look at verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, and the importance of having mentors, people more mature than you in the faith, people you can learn from. In fact, in in all of chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, there's only two commands. Verse 1, understand this. Timothy, wrap your head around the fact that it's going to get rough. It's going to get rough. Verses 1 through 9. And then in verse 14, Really the central command, the central emphasis of this passage is right there. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. And it's in that context of of Paul urging Timothy to finish his race. And turn over to chapter 4. Paul is about done with his life. He knows the end is near. And he says in verse 6 of chapter 4. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. We'll just keep reading, we'll get one more example of someone falling away. Do your best to come to me soon for Demas, in love with this present world, as opposed to loving Christ appearing at the end of verse 8, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So Paul reemphasizes, lays out this majestic truth of the inspiration, the sufficiency, the usefulness of Scripture for Timothy, but he does it not so that he'll have an answer for an exam, but so that he will build his life on and around the Word of God. I suggested last week to you that confidence in Scripture, your belief that God's Word is god breathed, not just some of it, not just the red letters, not just the New Testament, but all of it, is a critical piece in finishing well, finishing faithfully, not ending up like Demas. And that our perseverance in the faith is something the Lord oversees. He will not lose his sheep, but he will not lose his sheep through means. And one of the means is a high view of Scripture. And we talked about how so many who deconstruct their faith, it begins by beginning to waffle on those embarrassing portions of Scripture, those difficult passages, the ones our culture particularly doesn't like. And from there, it's a very fast unraveling to a full-on apostasy. And so, just to remind us where we've been, all Scripture, verse 16 of chapter 3, is God-breathed, breathed out by God. We talk about the doctrine of inspiration, but really inspiration speaks to the writers. You, you breathe in, you inspire. I get why they didn't say all Scripture is expired, That would give some negative connotations. God breathed is is good. We're breathed out by God. It's a bold declaration because you remember all of creation is breathed out by God, all of creation is spoken into existence. The same God who spoke the heavens and the earth and they came to be and they stood firm has spoken in his word. And we also considered at the end of verse 17, if you remember, we're doing this out of order. The sufficiency of Scripture, verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, the first point all, not just some parts, but all of Scripture is God breathed, and that the Scripture is sufficient. Sufficient. You see that in complete, equipped for every good work. And we considered that Scripture doesn't claim its sufficiency for open heart surgery doesn't claim its sufficiency for how to drive a car. It claims its sufficiency in the sphere of every good work. In other words, anything and everything that God would require of you, anything with an ethical element or dimension, Scripture claims its sufficiency for. If it's a good work, or flip it backwards, if it's a bad work dealing with that, Scripture says you can be fully equipped for every good work. Not most good works, not a lot of good works, but all of them. I want to make one qualification even further. That is true, but sometimes people will use that truth as a way of getting around other claims of Scripture. Not only is Scripture fully sufficient for good works, but in any other domain in which Scripture ventures, it is true and authoritative. I'll sometimes hear people who wrestle with the opening chapters of the Bible and Genesis say, well, the Bible's really true, and inspiration really just relates to doctrines of salvation. Uh Uh-uh. You can see Jesus reasoning from a literal Adam, a literal Eve, a literal Jonah, a literal flood. Our Lord and Master, the Lord Jesus Christ, clearly, I mean, this is not hard to show, clearly accepted the historical claims of Scripture as true reasoned from them. So even though Scripture isn't sufficient as a world history, when it enters into world history, it is true, it is accurate. We should trust it. We should rely upon it. Yeah, that's my caveat from last week. So let me read verses 16 and 17. We'll have a word of prayer and we'll try to get through and not make this a four-week series. So I'm making no promises. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. Lord God, I pray that you would send your spirit to open our eyes, to behold the glories, the sufficiency, the usefulness of your word. You have not left us orphans here. You have given us your spirit. You have given us each other, but you have also given us your word and by it your many great and precious promises I pray that you would increase our faith, cause us to trust and entrust ourselves to your living and active word. In Jesus' name, amen. The reason why I came at um, these three sort of points, this this message was point three in last week's sermon, is because I I think, at least logically in my head, if you start with the nature of Scripture from, from Genesis to Maps... That's a joke. Genesis to maps? Okay. Guys, okay. But from Genesis to Revelation and everything in between, all of it is God-breathed, not just some of it. All of it is God-breathed. And then when you add in the next piece, the totality of that scripture is fully sufficient for life and godliness for every good work. Then we get finally to the use of scripture. What do you do with scripture? Because it is possible to have a high view of scripture and your scripture is left on the shelf. You can, pr- you can have an orthodox confession of inerrancy and inspiration and sufficiency. And yet practically abandon it. I think that the use of scripture. And, and this is ultimately what Paul wants Timothy doing. His confidence that scripture is God breathed. His confidence that all of scripture is inspired. His confidence that it's sufficient is meant to lead him to do these four things. What do you do with scripture? Now that we have a God-breathed word, now that we have a sufficient word, what do you do with it? Well, Paul tells Timothy, it's profitable, it is useful, it is beneficial for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. And I think in four broad categories, Paul shows us the four primary uses of Scripture. I further want to suggest to you that this order is significant. It's not haphazard. I think there's a logic to it. And so we're just going to look through these four points, these four uses of Scripture in broad categories. What, what do you do with a God-breathed, sufficient, and inspired word? Well, to begin with, you teach. All Scripture is profitable for teaching. So if, if I'm right, if this order is significant, and I think it is, um, I'll, I'll walk you through briefly the logic of it. You can't call on people to repent of what they don't know. And so the second statement, for correction, I think requires instruction first. And then you can't put right. You can't correct. You can't, the the Greek word literally means like to stand back up in his place until you've been shown what you should do. You've grieved and repented and been corrected for what you're doing wrong. And then you can try to act rightly. And then training in righteousness Finishing your life. I think that's the the rationale, the logic of these, progression. So why start with teaching? I think it's got some significant implications for us. Um, And then probably the best way I can show that is by contrasting it with the predominant view in our culture. If you were to take, in our culture, thinking and feeling and doing and you were to put a cause and effect chain, I'll sometimes draw this in classes with a train, like what's the engine, what's the caboose, and you were to take um, doing and feeling and thinking, I think the predominant ordering of our culture would be, well, you start with feelings. You start with just being yourself and figuring out who and what you are and what's the authentic you. You you really can't be fake. you got to be you and then you got to go do that. So you start with intuition and feeling, and then on that you act. And then you, you think it over with your psychotherapist and you, and you write bad poetry about it. At least I did when I was an unbeliever. Um, terrible poetry. I think that's... In many cases, the world's approach to this. You, there's certainly an emphasis on authenticity and the real you and not being fake anymore. And you start with yourself and you follow your heart and you, you, you act on that truth and you act. And then we spend countless hours thinking over and over and over what we think of that, making sense of it and coming to grips with it, which is really the opposite of the Bible's assumption. The Bible's assumption Here's your blanks. I think the Bible teaches that right feelings, right feeling flows from right thinking and right doing. Right feeling flows from right thinking and right doing. Or another way to say that is that right thinking is the starting point. You can't do what is right and you can't feel rightly until you're thinking rightly. You're thinking, rightly. Turn all the way in your Bibles back to Genesis chapter 4. To the very first counseling scenario in Scripture. It's it's remarkable. It's remarkable. Genesis 4. And you're dealing with uh, envy, resentment, bitterness. Cain and Abel. Abel offered a blood sacrifice. It was accepted by the Lord. Cain offered fruit. It was not... And God in his compassion, God in his grace, comes down and speaks to Cain. Surely knowing what Cain is about to do. But in his compassion, in his kindness, he offers counsel. And, and if, if your Bible like mine has footnotes at the bottom, the footnotes are significant here for what the Hebrew is literally saying. Verse 6 of chapter 4. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? ESV, face fallen. That's a good rendering of the Hebrew. And what, what's, what's the point of your face falling? You're expressing negative emotions. Cain is feeling bad. He's frowning. He's scowling. His face is not lifted up. It's fallen. Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? The Lord is addressing Cain's emotional state, how he's feeling. And look at verse 7. If you do well... Will, it not, will you not be accepted? And then I got a little footnote, because that's not really what the Hebrew says. It's a Hebrew idiom that doesn't really work in English. But footnote, will it not be the lifting up of your face? To which, will you not be accepted? It's a fair enough English translation of that idiom. But because it res- corresponds to the falling of the face, and the falling of the face and the anger speaks to emotions, what God is saying to Cain is, Cain. If you will go do what is right, you will be smiling. You will feel better. The feelings, in other words, the lifting of your face is the result of right doing. And, of course, all of this presupposes God speaking and instructing him. And so, biblically, the feelings are the caboose. They're the result of how you're thinking and what you're doing. Jesus, in John... um, John... 1317. If you know these things, blessed or happy are you if you do them. It is significant because so often in my own life, I am pray that God would make me want to do something so that I could go do it. When biblically the reality is we act by faith, we're instructed, God tells us what to do, and then it's in the doing that our heart and our attitude changes. It's in the serving of my wife that I find joy in it. It's in the serving of my children that I find joy in it. Frequently, I I don't want to initially. It's going and doing it. God designed our hearts to sort of fall in line behind the way we're thinking, behind the way we're acting. And so thinking is critical. Thinking is critical. Um, Point B God must teach us what is right and true. And let me state what I think is the obvious, but because our culture disagrees so strongly with it, I think it needs to be made. You are not a fount of truth. You're not. I'm not either. You're not a source of truth. You're not a fount of truth. But we live in a world where what you think and who you think you are and who you identify as and what you think you need trumps absolutely everything. Physical reality. We will compel, or we're in the process of moving to compelling, all of your neighbors and all of your countrymen to fall in line with who you think you are, what you think you need, because you and you only are that source of truth. And above all, you have to be true to yourself. These are the cultural values we're dealing with. Carl Truman's book, if you read it, I think will offer some explanation for how we got to a place where those values are so elevated. Um, But biblically, you're not a source of truth. I mean, think about this. Adam and Eve, before the fall, needed instruction from God. Even there, they were not self-sufficient. God took Adam and he showed him the animals, leading Adam to the conclusion. Huh. There isn't anyone who corresponds to me. And then God took the initiative, and God put him to sleep, and God brought him his wife, and God gave them instructions and work to do in the garden. Even before the fall, man and woman were not sufficient founts of truth. There's a popular school of psychology, Rogerian Counseling. If you've ever seen the TV show Monk, Monk's Therapist is clearly Rogerian. If you've ever dealt with or seen on TV a therapist who... The, the, the person in therapy says, well, you know, what do you think I should do? And the therapist says, back, well, what do you think you should do? That's Rogerian. The assumption of Rogerian counseling is that the organism has everything within it. It needs to be successful. And so the therapist's job is really leading you to figure out what you already know deep down inside because you intuitively know what you need and lead you to those conclusions so you can figure out what you have to do to prosper and be successful. Scripture is profitable for teaching, and that presupposes we need teaching. Scripture's assumption is we lack truth, we get things wrong, we get confused, we see through a mirror darkly, and we need a word from God. And Scripture supplies that need. Scripture supplies that needed as God breathed. It is profitable. It is sufficient. And we use it first and foremost for teaching. We've got to get our thinking and our thoughts and our minds in line after God's word and his thinking and his thoughts. The goal is not to be original, but to be dependent in our thinking. Just think how much you can just tell the culture wouldn't like those types of things. Don't be original, be dependent, be imitative. Let your thoughts be modeled after God's thoughts. Let your evaluation of things fall in line in his evaluation of things. What he says is good, let you say be good. What he says is evil, let you say be is evil. We're respondent. We're not original in that sense. Um, and, And ultimately, that's because we are not sources of truth. We're not wellsprings of truth, but we are dependent on God for truth. Consequently... You must remain lifelong students of the word. So if you can accept the fact that we, you need information, you and I need information, you don't know everything you need to know, you don't have everything within you you need, then we can appreciate and prize God's words given to us. And you must remain a lifelong student of the word. I love this passage in Ezra people returned from Babylon. The law has largely been forgotten. Ezra 7.10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of God, to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Um, God's word is sufficient, but that doesn't mean it doesn't take work. doesn't mean it doesn't require effort. If you're back in Second Timothy, just look over to 2.15. This is the verse we get our Awana acronym out of. Approved workmen need not be ashamed. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So God's word is sufficient, but it may require work and energy. This is one of the reasons why God's given his church teachers, teachers, and leaders and those who help train and equip. We, we need to be told what is true. We need God to teach us. And then we need to engage in the lifelong pursuit of growing in our skill of understanding God's word. And that's, that's what Timothy needs to do. This is, this is what Paul's view for Timothy is. Timothy, remember, he starts way back with his childhood. Remember how God's word as a child brought you, made you wise to the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ to salvation. You attended to what God said and you received his word and you, you came to know the living God. Keep doing that. And my implication for us, keep doing that. You're not going to reach a point where you don't need truth externally anymore. Or please don't reach that point. You're, you're not going to reach a point where you can put away God's word and stop studying it. We were made dependent. Even before the fall, Adam and Eve were dependent on God to speak to them. They needed that outside information. And the glorious truth is God has spoken, and he has not stuttered. And he has said everything we need for life and godliness. What we need to persevere is to believe and trust that and put that to use with all the practical implications of that. Bringing us to point D, ultimately, you must grow in your ability to speak the truth. All scripture is inspired of God and profitable for teaching. And teaching is others-focused. Everything I've been talking to about this point could have been covered in the word instruction or learning. But teaching is something you do to someone else. And ultimately, that's the final goal, biblically. It's not just that you're feeding on it yourself, but like Ezra, you're studying and you're practicing it and you're teaching and each and every one of us is called to be a speaker and teacher of God's word, not just church leaders. Listen to Colossians 3, 9 through, no, Colossians three sixteen. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And if you think about it, as you walk in the day, as you gather with your friends, what are you doing but counseling and instructing? You're helping people frame reality. Someone comes to you, they've had a rough day, and you encourage them. You can encourage them with truth, or you can encourage them with error. It's not if you teach, you will teach. It's whether you teach truly and according to God's word or according to the wisdom of this age, the zeitgeist of 21st century Western culture. You will teach, you will instruct, you will give counsel. There's there's no way around that. God would have us do it from His Word. This is how the church builds itself up in in Ephesians chapter 4, one of my favorite passages. How does the church grow and mature? Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You get the totality. Every portion, every joint, every ligament is speaking the truth and love to itself. That's how the body matures and grows. And all of that is what Paul would have Timothy continue to be doing. He's telling him it's, it's breathed of God, all of it. Every square inch. And it's enough. It's sufficient. And you need to understand how beneficial and how profitable it is for teaching. Because we need instruction. The church needs instruction. Your neighbors need instruction. Evangelism is teaching unbelievers the gospel. And then we go on speaking God's word to each other. So that's the first use of scripture. And I've got to speed up. Second... All scripture is profitable for reproof. So in the first point, scripture can tell you what is true, what is right, what you ought to be doing. How you ought to speak, how you ought to live, how you ought to arrange your marriage, how you ought to treat your neighbor. Well, the reality of us being fallen and sinful is most of the time when I hold my life up to what God says ought to be, what is true, I I see distortion. And scripture is useful Secondarily, to reprove. Um, Point A, it exposes and rebukes our wrong thinking and doing. And again, the ordering is important because when you're dealing with sin or some error in somebody else, you need to stop and ask yourself, is this something we, we need to talk about? Maybe they don't understand biblically what God has said. And so teaching is called for before rebuke. Or is this something that person knows perfectly well? I mean, a simple example would be someone tells you a lie. I I don't think I've met a person who's actually confused about whether lying is okay. Maybe in some fringe cases about, like, government secrets and spies. But in general, someone just lying to your face, they know that's wrong. And so you could probably skip straight to, why'd you do that? That was wrong. To the rebuke. In something else, a little more complicated, um, there might need to be instruction, Maybe this other person thinks driving 10 miles over the speed limit is fine. Maybe, maybe there's some confusion, and you now need to move to the instruction first. I remember when I was working at Camp Good News, um, getting discussions about copyrighted law and, and copying of CDs and theft, and uh, something that I thought was clear, there wasn't consensus on. And so it actually led to some fruitful discussions. It wouldn't have been wise or right of me to come out just, you've been stealing, you need to repent. Really, there needs to be some instruction first. I think this logical flow makes sense. So scripture is profitable for reproof. It exposes and rebukes our wrong thinking and doing. Because, of course, even as you're reading scripture, it's reading and exposing you. Hebrews 4, 12 to 13, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul, of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's what's so scary. You read your Bible, and it's telling you that this, this is really what's going on. I mean, because we, we know this from James, right? We like to minimize. I don't tell lies. I'm less than forthright. I'm not a pessimist. I'm not grumbling. I'm a realist. And then you read God's Word, and it's like, no, I'm a liar. <laughs> Imagine that. And every other wicked thing that I excuse and minimize... It exposes the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So scripture is useful for telling us what is true, for instructing us, for telling us what we need to know to live, how we ought to think, how we ought to arrange life. And it's secondarily helpful to rebuke and to correct. Point B, God's spirit uses his word to bring conviction to sin. This is the ministry of the Spirit Jesus spoke of in John uh, 16. John 16, Jesus says, when he comes, the Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And we know from John 16, where Jesus says a little later, he will not speak on his own authority, but only what he hears he will speak, which is to say the primary means that the Holy Spirit uses his ordinary means of grace is not to give fresh new words, but to use the inscripturated word as his tool of conviction. Which, which means if we're being faithful servants of the living God, it's not our force of our will or our threats or our growling or our anything that we're using and trusting and to call people to repentance. But God's word and his spirit. You, you can't do what only the spirit can do. You can plead You can appeal sincerely with tears, but only the spirit can take God's word and apply it to the human heart. And this gets again back to what are we trusting for our means of changing and calling on people to change? This means point C, that you and I need to make use of the scripture when lacking zeal. You ever find yourself knowing what's right, but really not caring? It's a dangerous place to be. One of my dear friends who... Um, abandoned any semblance of a profession of faith and faithfulness, just told me over an issue of uh, the the disillusion of his marriage, I know it's right, I just don't care. Well, Scripture is useful to bring the conviction. Scripture is not simply useful to tell you what you should do, be faithful to your wife or keep your promises or... Love your neighbor. But scripture can also convict. It can bring conviction when we lack it. So if you find yourself knowing the good you should do, knowing what God would have you do, knowing what sin the Lord would have you battle, knowing what good thing he would have you do, and you find yourself lethargic and apathetic, God's word can not only tell you what to do, but give you the zeal, the conviction to do it which means say, say you're wrestling with your tongue and you find yourself not really caring, slipping back to old patterns of speech, corrupt words. Go read what God says. The pro, my goodness, the Proverbs, are so many Proverbs just alone in that one book about speech and refresh and remind yourself of what God says about it and see if his spirit doesn't testify to his word and your affections and your convictions and your will begin to align with the Lord's. And you gain zeal and strength. There's some scripture's not just useful to tell you what the mark on the wall you're supposed to hit is, it's also useful to convict, to give zeal to weak limbs. Point D, we are to make use of Scripture in calling others to repentance. We don't have time to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians 10.13, Paul goes through a, a long list of the errors of the Israelites in the Old Testament. And he comes and brings it to a head by saying, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Paul is calling the Corinthians to faithfulness and to repentance. And he does so by, remember what happened to the Israelites. He's using scripture. Remember what we know about God and what he does to people who grumble, people who put him to the test. Don't do that. God's word is his primary tool to bring conviction. And so both for your own heart and for your neighbors, you can bring the wisdom of the world. You can bring um, the wisdom of Oprah. Or you can bring the truth of the living God and use it, trusting that it is living and active. Point three. All Scripture is profitable for correction. It's profitable for correction. Now this, probably up to this point, you've been with me. I think most people understand God's Word tells us what to do. It tells us what is right. And God's Word can make us feel bad when we don't do it. I think where a lot of people um, practically aren't as confident, though, is that God's Word can do anything more. Frequently when I'm talking to people, especially when they're feeling defeated, when they've, when they've sort of given up that change is possible, yes, yes, I know. I know what God says I should do. And yes, yes, I feel awful about what I'm doing. But there's this implicit assumption that's all Scripture is good for. And Paul insists not only can Scripture tell you what is true and instruct you and renew your mind, not only can it bring conviction and reproof and rebuke, but it can also help you put change into practice. It can also help you actually... The, the Greek word is putting almost like a pot back up on its pedestal. It's, it's writing something wrong. It, it, it is change. It is change. Point A, this is because godly sorrow leads to repentance and change. The, the natural progression of this passage, the natural progression of our sanctification, is we're confronted by God's truth. In light of God's truth, we see the distinction between how we're living, how we're thinking, how we're speaking what god 's word says there 's an implicit rebuke, and then, if we don 't resist that rebuke, but we yield, we repent, we change change flows out of that. This is what Paul says in second Corinthians chapter seven, verses ten through eleven Paul had written the corinthians a, Hard letter. And he tells them he, he took no joy in that. But he's glad he did it because even though it stung a little bit, they, they repented. And listen to how he says this. The, look at the flow of the movement. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces Death. And then he points to the change. For see, and here are the evidences of their repentance, see what earnestness this godly grief produced for you, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. At every point, you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. So they were convicted and rebuked by Paul's letter. They grieved, they grieved into repenting, and out of that repentance, the evidence of that repentance is their zeal, is their longing, is their avenging of wrong is their clearing of their selves, their indignation. At every point, you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. That's the movement. And scripture, then, can tell you what you ought to be thinking, doing, treating others. It can convict you for your failure to do that. It can give you zeal. And it can help you actually implement the change itself. Because this is an important point to remember. Change hasn't happened until change has happened. By which I mean, there's a trap. I, I know I've, I've been trapped by this before. You, you you listen to a message, you sit in church, read a book, and you feel really convicted. God's got his thumb on you, and you're just sitting there going, yeah, I blew it this week. Maybe it's your temper. Maybe it's things you're looking at online. Maybe, maybe it's your relationship with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe it's... What numbers you put down in your income tax? I don't know. And you're really convicted. And you get up and you leave, and you pat yourself on the back and say, well, I must be doing okay since I got so convicted. I've, I've made that mistake before. I've listened to sermons. I used to spent one summer listening to Paul Washer on my bike, and, and Paul Washer's got about three sermons, and one of them is you're not really a good husband. And I was listening to that. And I remember crediting myself for listening to it and enduring it and feeling so terrible about it. But then the next question is, okay, what actual change did I make? Well, nothing. Don't mistake conviction, sorrow, in and of itself as anything. Until you actually repent and change is produced, change hasn't happened. And scripture enables you to do that, to put into practice, to move from simply feeling bad to that turning of the will and that putting on of, of new Christ-like behavior. Scripture fully equips you to implement change. Oh, the clock really is accurate, I think. Um, we were going to turn to Ephesians 4. I'll summarize because we went through Ephesians. I'll read the passage to you. But in Ephesians 4, Paul gives us, I think, a helpful paradigm. There's, there's others in the Bible for how to change. But really practical, practical. Um, Ephesians 4.20. This is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. To be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created in the likeness of God. So your blanks are put off, put on, and renew. There's a biblical paradigm for change. And what's helpful is it means then that when... you Whether or not you're convicted of a bad thing you're doing, you need to stop. Or whether or not you're convicted of a good thing you should be doing that you're not doing, you need to start doing. There's always a corresponding other side. And Paul makes this explicit. Therefore, having put away falsehood, put off, let each of you speak the truth to his neighbor. It means practically, if you're dealing with lying, it's not just enough to not lie, but you've actually got to become a truth speaker positively. Um, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands that he may have something to share with anyone in need. That's really fascinating. It's not just enough to, to not steal. What that text is making clear is a person who steals is motivated in their heart by coveting, by greed, by selfishness, and they haven't really changed until they actually develop a work ethic and become generous. That's practical. You're dealing with a child or somebody who's, who's who's got sticky fingers. They steal things. It's not just enough to stop them from doing it. Don't, don't steal. But actually, correspondingly, put on generosity, good work ethic. This is some of the ways Scripture practically helps us in, in making plans, implementing change, and all of that through the renewal and transformation of the mind through the Holy Spirit. Finally, point four. All scripture is profitable for training in righteousness. I like to think of uh, point two and three as sort of the crisis. S- some area in your life is out of line. Some area in your life is, is not conformed to God's word and you become convicted. And then scripture enables you to actually implement change, correct what's wrong. I think point four has more of the long haul in view. Scripture is able to strengthen and mature you. Scripture is able to strengthen and mature you. In fact, the the phrasing here, profitable for training in righteousness, is very similar wording to Ephesians 6.4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up. There's your word. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is just child-rearing. And Scripture is profitable for that. Whatever stage you are in your growth in the Lord, whether you're a child, a baby, an adolescent, a teenager, Scripture can keep growing and maturing you up. It will continue to grow and train you up as God's child. Um, and point C here, you, you will never outgrow your need for Scripture. And that's, I think, the danger, especially... Um, if we're thinking in lines of being faithful to the end. When I first became a believer, man, everything was new. And I had so many areas that I was thinking wrongly about. And so many things I needed instruction on. And God's word was just fresh and amazing. And and I couldn't get enough of it. And wow, I, I was wrong about that one too. And I was wrong about that one too. And I'm just learning and reading and delighting and in being instructed by God. And 20 plus years on, the temptation is I... I I know what I need to know, at least mostly. We, we never move beyond this. We never stop growing. You're, you're never mature enough. And, and by implication, if you believe that Scripture is God-breathed, and if you believe that it's sufficient, and if you believe that it's profitable, you're never going to outgrow it. I, I love this. I'm going to call the worship team up here in just a second. But look at chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. Apostle Paul, who's about to finish his race well. The Apostle Paul, who can say, I've kept the faith, is writing scripture from prison, days, weeks, months, before he's going to be put to death. And what does he want Timothy to bring with him in 4.13? When you come, bring the cloak. I left with Carpus at Troas, because it's chilly, apparently. Also the books, and above all, the parchments. Paul's still got some studying and some training and some work to do, even as he's facing the end of his course. How do you finish well? Don't put the Bible on the shelf. Make use of it. Everything that Paul has said to Timothy about it being God-breathed and it being sufficient is meant to lead Timothy to joyfully, enthusiastically teach God's word and use it to reprove and use it to correct and throughout the remainder of your life to use it to train you in righteousness. That's what it's good for. And if we're not actually doing that, it doesn't matter what you say you think about its inspiration and inerrancy and sufficiency. The practical proof in the pudding is are we using it to instruct or are we getting truth somewhere else? Are we using it to convict and motivate and reprove? Or are we looking to other motivations? Are we turning to scripture to help us actually implement change or are we turning to other sources of truth? And ultimately, what are we trusting to bring us home? I'm gonna call the worship team up now. Let's have a word of prayer. We'll sing our closing song. Lord God, it is my prayer that you would cause us to, To not only confess these truths, but to believe them and apply them. That your word would be our source of instruction. That your word would be our source of reproof and correction. That your word would be where we turn to, to implement change. And your word would continue to build us, strengthen us, mature us in the faith. That we might finish our courses well that we might persevere to the end. In Jesus' name, amen.